Welcome to Fine Tuning with Duke Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I am Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Sunday, August 1st, 2021. We are now officially in the dog days of summer, which run from July 3rd through August 11th. Some will tell you that this time of year gets its name because of that stretch of, this stretch of summer typically has the most oppressive weather, highest temperatures, most thunderstorms, weather that isn't fit for a dog. Truth is, however, the name comes from this particular phase of the celestial calendar. This is when the sun occupies the exact same region of the sky as Cirrus, which is the brightest star visible from any place on Earth and is part of the constellation Canis Major, the Greater Dog. So that is why Cirrus is sometimes called the Dog Star, and when the sun occupies the same chunk of sky as Cirrus, that's why this piece of summer is known as the Dog Days, and I bring this up because didn't you just bring Nova into the room while you're recording the show, Drew? I, I did. I did. Every day is a dog day when it comes to me, Jim. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> how, how is Nova doing? I mean, this has been a fairly interesting summer out there in L.A., hasn't it? I mean, yeah. the fireworks yeah. have stopped going off. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, she survived 120 degrees in, in Palm Springs. So oh. she's she's good. She's happy. Oh. <laughs> that poor dog. By the way, there's another dog that features heavily in the animation news for this week. And speaking of news, the news portion of today's fine-tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. So, dog in the news is, of course, Goofy, who is starring in a trio of new hand-drawn shorts to debut on Disney Plus on August 11th. Yes, I'm so excited about this, aren't mm. you? I am, I am. I was a little concerned, largely because, you know, I don't know if you saw the, the, the D23 teaser piece for this, but here's Eric Goldberg talking about how these were basically, these shorts were inspired by everything we were all going through as part of the quarantine. And, well, we've got our three titles. We've got How to Wear a Mask, Learning to Cook, and Binge Watching, and... I don't know if you, you ever heard the story about how it was Rob Reiner and Billy Crystal who once were making fun of Mel Brooks for Spaceballs because it's like he was making a movie that made fun of Star Wars like three years after uh, The Return of the Jedi happened. Then it was just the notion of it's like, oh, you know, the joke's over. I mean, that if you made it, you know, when George Lucas was still making Star Wars movies, this would be a, a, a great joke, but it's it's three years too late. And I was, you know, I was kind of feeling bad for Eric because it was like, oh, we're coming out of COVID and are people really going to want to laugh at having to wear a mask or learning to bake bread or but it turns out Eric must have a magic weight eight ball. He must have known that here comes the Delta and Lambda variant and that, you know, especially when it comes to Disney. Just this past week, all of the, if you're going into an indoor ride or show at a theme park, you got to put your mask back on. So Eric was actually, you know, right on the money with the timing of this. But even so, Dorothy McKim, who is producing the series of shorts at Walt Disney Animation Studios for Disney+, Plus. Her quote is that we're not making fun of wearing a mask. Goofy's having fun with it. We can all relate to him. We have a little chuckle at it. But he did these. He recruited, isn't Mark Henn either animating or directing one of these? Yes. I, well, I think Eric uh, 
directed all three, and Mark is a supervising animator on one of them. Um, but yeah, I think it was a team of only 10 animators did all three shorts, which is pretty awesome. Oh, I agree. So, I agree. And yeah. Eric being the student of animation that he is, these lean very, very heavily into the old goofy shorts of the 1940s. In fact, uh, I want to say they actually went back and harvested a whole bunch of Jimmy McDonald's original sound effects from the shorts to, to drop into these things. It's so cool. It's so cool. I mean, it's a thing of the resurgence of COVID. and We just got our first film pulled from the schedule because of this new resurgence, right? Yeah. Clifford the Big Red Dog was supposed to come out on September 17th, and now Paramount has taken it off the schedule due to Delta concerns. Mm. So I don't know how this is going to affect everything. We just got numbers in for the Jungle Cruise, mm. and uh, you know, a high, a high number of people just uh, watched it at home. So, you know, I think Clifford feels like it could be a Paramount Plus title, but Again, already all this stuff is popping up in stores right now, mm. right? All these tie-ins and toys and stuff like that. So it's it's a, it's another mess, Jim. It's it is. Mess. It is. But to give Eric Oberg some credit that one of these three shorts that he's making is about binge watching. And if we're all forced back into the house, at least we have Disney Chippendale Park Life. We got our first episode of season one. I don't know if you had a chance to watch this yet, uh, Drew. It's it's literally three seven-minute-long shorts stitched together into one 22-minute-long episode. I want to say in the same window of time, we got the continuation of the season one of The Wonderful World of Mickey Mouse. We just got two brand-new nine-minute-long shorts. We got House Ghosts and The Enchanting Hut. Do you realize it's been over eight years now since they launched the series back in June of 2013? I do know that. Only because I'm working on a story about Mickey Mouse right now. So Are I, you really? Uh, okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, I loved the two new new ones, though. Mm-hmm. I thought it was they were great. I can't believe they brought back the lonesome ghosts. Well, you know? yeah, yeah. That that's it. it was nice to see those characters again with that design and with that look. But this Mickey Mouse story you're working on, do you talk about the rudder stuff? I mean, particularly going from the original series, I think the longest they did was like three and a half minutes, right? Yeah. And so these newer shorts are two and a half times as long? Yeah, I mean, my story is about runaway brain so i am just getting into kind of where oh, where mickey no. is now and i've uh <laughs> this uh, this uh, story will uh, dock points from me for the walt disney animation studios crew but that that's okay it's a story that needs to be told and um i talked to everybody involved basically and um it is a really fascinating untold piece of mickey mouse history jim so Look for that soon. Cannot wait. Holy cow. No, I, I, I've loved that short since it... it now, when did, what did it make its theatrical debut with? A Kid in King Arthur's Court. That's that right. classic That's right. oh, from the... Yes, 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 yes. You know, there's so much in that short. In fact, is that the first time... Kelsey Grammer, is, is that the first time he did work for Disney Studios as an animation voice or Yeah, I guess so. It must have been. Well, I don't I don't know if he was on like one of the Disney afternoon shows or something, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was before Toy Story 2 and, you know, Ugh. he's just so great in that character. There is so much in that short that I love. You know, in fact, that there's one little beat in that short where, you know, it's after they've 
they swap brains and it's Mickey and Julius's body and Julius's you know, brain and Mickey's body. And Mickey tries to explain what's going on and opens his wallet. At one point, don't they stop on an image of, of Steamboat Willie? Mickey's, oh, that's old. Yes. <laughs> There's so many great little character beats in that thing. And the references to Die Hard, the references to uh, Exorcist. Exorcist. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, cannot wait. Cannot wait to see this story from you. Well, let me tell you that, that Kelsey Grammer did appear as Fraser Crane in Mickey's 60th birthday celebration from 1988, which oh. I just watched and told you that we have to do something about at some point. And he also appeared as as Fraser Crane on the Magical World of Disney, Disneyland's 35th anniversary. Is it the conceit of the, the first one that Mickey has gone missing? Yeah. After Roger Rabbit screws mm-hmm. up his big presentation at mm-hmm. the Videopolis Theater in Disneyland. <sighs> I mean, Jim, this is the most 80s thing you have ever seen in your life. I just remember that there is a scene where literally Mickey walks into Cheers and nobody knows his name. But he's there with the cast with George Wendt and John Ratzenberger and Rhea Perlman and... Oh, that's right. Frazier is there. Kelsey's in the pile. Holy cow. All right. All right. We will do something about this for a future show. Yes. Getting back to the news and shows that debuted just this past week, which brings us to Jellystone over at HBO Max. Did you get a chance to check any of these out? Or? Yeah, I watched the first episode. It is insane. <laughs> I mean, fr- from the opening credits, as you pointed out, I mean... Did you notice that Orbity was the a- alien that crash landed into the building from the Jetsons? <laughs> yes, yes. What I love about what C.H. Greenblatt has done with this show is they brought him in with the notion of, well, would you like to do some shorts? Would you, you know, we want to reboot Hanna-Barbera. And he came up with this idea of them all living together in the, this one town. And that opening title sequence where... Obscure doesn't even begin to describe some of the character choices. Like Winnie the Winsome Witch. Did you see her there in in sort of the march to the center of town? Yeah. This is a character that she's on the Adam Ant and Secret Squirrel show from 65. Just one season, one season, and she's gone. And CH is like, we got to have her. In fact, have you picked up on the number of male characters that have been switched over to females? No, no, I haven't. I mean, I noticed that there were some, but yeah, that's crazy. Jabberjaw, Yaggy Doodle, Squiddly Diddly have been changed over, and that was largely because Hanna-Barbera, you know, 50s and 60s, was a very male-heavy show. And it, it, it Greenblatt felt, you know, we, we really need to have better representation. So he sort of went through and surgically chose. And so, for example, Augie Doggy now is a female, but that then turns Doggy Daddy into this helicopter parent, you know, who's very stressed about his daughter out in the world and making sure that she does right. But again, same thing. That's that's a character from the Quick Draw McGraw show from back in 59, off the air since 1962. And yet all of these characters are part of this crazy world. Did you catch the scene where they, they brought back the banana splits? No, I I will say that I only watched the first section of the first episode. Okay, so it was a it was a lot, Jim. This show. No, no, no. It it, it is. It is. In fact, I mean that. I for me is half the charm of the show is that they trusted it so much that it's, it has great affection for the the source material, but at the same time. 
these are very different takes on the characters. I mean, just the fact that, for example, Cindy Bear, Yogi's longtime girlfriend, is now a doctor and running the hospital in town. And one of the clips that I was watching, she was dealing with Grape Ape had fallen down in the middle of town and was now in a food coma. And, you know, they were... But they basically spent the entire sequence doing CSI jokes, you know, quick camera moves and that sort of thing. So we've got all these characters from the 1960s, from Hanna-Barbera being revived through the green black lens. And at the same time this week, we got we got news that Arthur, which I guess has been running on, on PBS since 96, will end its 25-year run on the network next year uh, when the last episode airs in 2022. I mean, it's a hell of a run. It's, it's 249 episodes, but it's a standard tell-two-stories in each half-hour-long show, so it's actually... 485 segments of Arthur. But I guess this has never been on your radar, Drew. Is that what you were saying? No, yeah, no I, I I, have no, uh, no fascination with Arthur. And I was just happy to not be the one to spill the beans that Arthur was canceled. And, uh, <laughs> we don't want another repeat uh, DuckTales incident. So um, that was the worst kept secret in Hollywood. And, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that well, somebody had to say it eventually... But even even over at, at the production company of Arthur, there are people who are, are bitter. Like, for example, uh, <laughs> Kathy Wong, who developed the show based on Mark Brown's books. She was speaking with the voice actor Jason Swimmer, who I guess did Arthur until he aged up. And she was talking about Arthur is no longer in production. I mean, we had a rap party two years ago. But that I think PBS made a mistake, and I think Arthur should come back. And I'm not alone in thinking that they made a mistake. And... Look at Jellystone. It's entirely possible Arthur will come back at some point. But at the same time, I mean, if you look at the 25 years versus uh, that Arthur has been in production versus the 30 years that Phil Tippett has been working on Mad Gods. Did you see the trailer for that? Yes, I am so ready for it, Jim. I just just injected into my bloodstream. (laughs) I'm, I'm a huge fan of Phil Tippett's work all the way back to Empire. In fact, I think you watched this as part of your old Disney festival, Dragon Slayer. Did, did, did you watch that? Oh, yeah. I love Dragon Slayer. That is just an, an amazing movie. Absolutely. And his work is incredible. Yeah. I mean, in fact, wasn't it Go Motion that was the big deal yeah. rather than the way Ray Harryhausen did stop motion where you literally you moved the figure, you took a, a photo, then you moved the figure a little more, took, took another frame. What Phil and his team came up with, when things are actually moving, there is a certain amount of blur. There's a certain amount of energy. And the thing with stop motion is it's all still photographs. And so what they decided to do with Dragon Slayer is they would actually, what, there were gears inside of the stop motion figures or that they would actually, they would do the pose and then, but as they're taking the shot, they deliberately move it as it was being shot, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was creating that very imperceptible but yet still noticeable to the human eye blurring yeah. when they were moving and and I think it was that was what they, how they were supposed to be doing the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park and yeah. you know Go Motion was a huge part of that mm-hmm. plan right yeah. to do those yeah. dinosaurs. You've heard the story about when they they showed Phil Tippett the first CG test. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what he said when he saw the? Oh, I do. He said. Uh, 
I think that this test has made me extinct. And there we go. Spielberg said, that's good. I'm going to put that in the movie. <laughs> so, yeah. Dr. Alan Grant gets to say that in the yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. I love Phil. I think he's, he and I have sort of become friendly. Um, and I think he's a total genius. I can't wait. Even though this is, this movie's going to scare you, Jim. I know no, that. That's but... it. Exactly. I mean, it just, that's the thing. I, this is 30 seconds that nearly sent me under the bed. What is the rest of this movie like? The artwork, only a Phil Tippett could do the sort of stuff that's in this teaser for this film. But it's like 30 years he's been working on this thing. And it, it, and it looks like a solid hour and a half of nightmare fuel. I mean, I will watch it and, and then probably go directly and get therapy. It looked amazing. But at the same time, it kind of makes me sad that he had this much time to work on this. Because the world kind of moved on from the brilliant stuff that he did. So while we're talking about things that happened 30 years ago, 31 years ago, in fact, today, a Disney film debuted that has a lot of weird history itself, which we'll get to right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling, wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Before we get to our feature about the, the mystery Disney film, you had the chance to take a look at the Blu-ray for Luca. Yeah, as of this recording, it'll be out, I think, on Tuesday. And I love mm -hmm. that they're actually physically putting out these these movies on, on disc. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's great to always have the access on Disney+, Plus. but this uh, new Blu-ray comes with a lot of really great special features, including a, a great sort of 15-minute documentary about their trips to Italy and the real-life places that inspired Luca and also some great deleted scenes that I didn't even get to get through all of them because there's so many um, mm -hmm. and we had to record. But mm -hmm. I mean, they really present a very different version of the movie. And one of the things I think that you and I have both talked about on the show is how much we appreciate the simplicity of Luca. Mm -hmm. And so you get to see all the crazy, totally complicated stuff that they cut out that would have made the movie way less special, I think. So it's really an interesting look at how Pixar kind of winnows something down to its essence. And mm -hmm. um, the more I think about Luca, too, I think it is one absolutely one of the best Pixar movies ever. So I'm just in love with it. Over on YouTube, the planets kind of aligned that Luca came out just as Pride Month was happening. There were so many people who have taken the Silencio Bruno and turned it into their own little piece of theater. It's very funny how adamantly Disney has objected to the queer reading of Luca, which I feel like is pretty blatant, Jim. That's the thing I don't get is that there are giant countries out there that get very, very upset if, you know, that the, the you know, LGBT, you know, content. And so what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. But no, I mean, this literally, the, the story of these, these, Two boys, you know, their, their amazing friendship. Is that what it was called, Jim? An amazing friendship. Okay. There we go. Nothing to see here. You know, it, 
<laughs> it reminds me, you know, when I was at the company, we had these really hard guidelines mm. for Coco mm. and Moana that Coco could never be associated with Halloween and mm. Moana could never be associated with tiki culture. Cut to 2021 mm. and the Polynesian Hotel is being rethemed to mm. Moana and Coco has become a huge part of the Halloween festivities worldwide. It's played on Disney Channel the whole month and so I think that I think that given enough time, I think in five years, mm-hmm. you, we will be seeing rainbow shirts with the Coco characters on released for Pride. And, you know, it'll just be accepted for what it is. But I, I, you know, I, it's just kind of a shame that it's going to take that long. Disney is Disney. In the history of the company, there are these rock solid rules until there suddenly are no rock solid rules. Right. And that's the thing with Luca. You know, I'm sure you're right. Get You know, this situation plus five years. The moment the consumer product goes out to a pride parade and sees people making homemade Lucas stuff, and it's like, that's money we could have had. You know, I was at World of Disney at Downtown Disney last night, and I Mm. said, where is all the Lucas stuff? Mm. And they said, we don't have any more because we sold out immediately. So that's great. That is how much this this movie is being embraced. Yeah. So great to hear. Holy cow. Going through the deleted scenes, I've heard about an iteration of the third act that involved the town being attacked by a giant sea monster. Yeah. I haven't gotten there yet, but they are set. I mean, this version that they're showing deleted scenes from is sort of setting up the fact that at one point there was a monster hunter in town and a giant Kraken kind of killed him and brought his ship down to the depths. And there's, Mm -hmm. that's where his treasure still lies to this day. So Part of this wacky version of Luca is is the boys trying to find this treasure. So what I am assuming is going to happen when I finish watching this, these deleted scenes is that they're going to get the treasure and then the Kraken will be awoken. But yeah, I cannot imagine a version where the town was destroyed by a Kraken in the third act. I mean, is there anything further afield from this movie no, than, no. than that? No, no. I mean, and that's the thing. It's just sort of this story doesn't need those stakes. The story yeah. is just perfect the way it is. So I bring up the Kraken Kaiju aspect because you you pointed out that amazing Taco Bell ad that just dropped for the, the, for the nacho fries, which yeah. is, I, I mean, I want to be in the conference room where, you know what this needs? You know what we need to sell the you know, nacho fries is from Pacific Rising. That's what we need. Right. And to lean into that world and that mythology and then do the mecha anime that they do in this thing is so spot on. So amazing. Yeah. People should check it out. Uh, yeah. Let me see what it's It's called Fry Force. I mean, part of the inspiration was that it was it was debuting during the Tokyo Olympics. Right. And they wanted to sort of pay homage to. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That's. Oh. Oh. So that's why that's why it, it, it is what it is. And it was produced by uh, a UK, a, a US-based organization called uh, PSYOP, and they do a lot of commercials for video games and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the animation was done by Yapiko Animation in Japan. Mm-hmm. So it is damn good, and it's so spot on and so oh, no, no. cool. I, I mean, every time this thing comes on, I'm just like, whoa, this is just amazing. No, absolutely, absolutely. No, no it, it's great fun, and I love the... Yeah, I'm getting fried here. I mean, it's just... it's. It's the right tone. It's the right style. But yeah. really, they made it to debut during the Tokyo Olympics. That's yeah. That's wonderfully culturally sensitive. There, that's, <laughs> just give them lots you of. You know, it's today. it's paying homage to a cultural touchstone of mm. Japanese culture, and you know, 
it's just it is it is out of this world. So if you don't if you don't watch it on the Olympics, you can watch it on uh, on YouTube and just feast feast your eyes, and then go get some some nacho fries, which actually look pretty repulsive, but I've heard are <laughs> delicious. So. <laughs> Okay. All right. I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> One last little bit of news here. You you dug up. We, we now have a cast for Dreamless Animation Bad Guys. At least the the early art, the early take on this. Is it, so we're finally getting an animated Tarantino. Is is that what this is? Or yeah, I don't I don't really know what the what the vibe of this is. But we you know you and I have been following this movie for a little while. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. as long as some other movies that we've. We've kept an eye on, but it looks great, and it is based on a uh, New York Times best-selling children's book series Mm -hmm. by Aaron Blabby. So I'm I'm assuming there will be more of these, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's directed by Pierre Parafel, who is a longtime DreamWorks animator who directed Bilby, that short film that was based on the feature that got canceled, along with so many others. Mm -hmm. But the cast, yeah, is amazing. It's Sam Rockwell, Aquafina. Mark Marin, Craig mm-hmm. Robinson, Anthony Ramos, uh, Richard Aote, uh, Zazie Beetz, Lily Singh, and Alex Borstein. So count me in, Jim. Yeah, it sounds amazing and, and sounds like a fun side of the street to work. But I worry, you know, especially given what just happened with the big red dog, that going forward, what's going on here? Especially coming this week after the Black Widow lawsuit, which... Did you hear anything about that in advance? No, but I think that I think that on a future episode we need to bring up why these kind of lawsuits won't be happening for animated features, mm-hmm. which has to do with guilds and residuals and things like that that are totally off the table on animated stuff. That is just seems very unfair and weird and why you will never see a, a lawsuit like this coming from the animated side of things. But I, th- I say Scarlet should should get what's owed to her, Jim. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, we should we should look into the, the animated side of it. No, that's an point. excellent suggestion. I still remember the stories of when Jeffrey Katzenberg was at Disney. Evidently, there was this story about how whenever a celebrity would have a child, Jeffrey would make a note of that in four years' time, to reach out to this performer about possibly coming to voice a character on a Disney animated film. Because that was when they really began to watch Disney films. You know, you can't go to watch Daddy's action film. Or, for example, Demi Moore. Your kids can't go watch G.I. Jane. But on the other hand, they can go watch Hunchback. That was such an interesting period in the company's history. And speaking of which, for our feature today, Drew and I are going to talk a bit about DuckTales, the movie, The Treasure of the Lost Lamp, which actually came out on August 3rd, 1990, so 31 years ago. What's weird about DuckTales, Legend of the Lost Lamp, it's a film that definitely got impacted by when it came out. This is a movie that came out after Roger Rabbit and then after The Little Mermaid, and it was one of these situations where suddenly Disney realized, wow, you can make real money off of animation again. So this was originally supposed to be, what, just five episodes of the DuckTales TV series, right? It's supposedly set up between season three and season four. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so much of the the DuckTales has been implemented, you know, in the future, including Mm -hmm. how they used to do the the uh, made-for-video releases, Mm -hmm. right? Because, I mean... 
So many of those were just a bunch of episodes stapled together. I don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Disney has pivoted right after, you know, the the one-two punch of of Roger Rabbit and Mermaid and to the effect of, wow, okay, let's get serious about animation. But at the same time, they're like, well, we should get some other stuff out there and we should especially try to flood the zone, so to speak. We keep putting our movies out in that November window for the, the holiday season. And in fact, that's where Beating the Beast eventually drops in 91, likewise Aladdin in 92. But for Christmas or Thanksgiving, excuse me, of 1990, that was Rescuers Down Under paired with Mickey's Prince of the Pauper. Now, did that predate A Runaway Brain? Yes, it did. But it is technically a featurette. It was never intended for. That's right. Theatrical exhibition, it was kind of a last-minute ploy to get people to see Rescuers Down Under when the numbers looked a little iffy for that Mm -hmm. one. So, I mean, what makes Runaway Brain different is that it was also a modern Mickey, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Prince and the Popper is very much classic Mm -hmm. kind of, like, aw shucks Mickey. This Mm -hmm. is a Mickey who's playing video games, and you're going to hear a great story, Jim, about Mm -hmm. how... The initial version of the video game he played mm. was a Bambi shooter game. <laughs> no, <laughs> really? yes, and apparently, just pictured, just pictured Tom Schumacher sitting in the screening room and him just going over my dead <laughs> body, and so. Yeah. Oh. Not to give away my whole article, but that is one of the many oh, funny that's, things that that's you read. Yeah. Killer. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, no. I, yeah. I get have to read this. Have to read this. So here they decide okay, we need another animated feature to come out in 1990. We've got our talent already locked down for these other features. So this is the first time that Disney releases an animated feature that's not actually done by Disney, that they farm it out to these other studios. Now, mind you, if you look back over the history of the company, they've done this a couple of times. There's a short in 1938 called Babies. It turns out that Walt had just made all of this money off of Snow White, which, again, released to theaters in December of 37, goes wide in 38, and suddenly Walt's like, oh, my God, look at all the money we make off of features. And so he's pouring all of his talent, all of his staff into getting Pinocchio ready. And he then realizes that, oh, crap, I'm under contract to deliver a silly symphony and I don't have the people to do it. So he actually farms out the production of Babies to harmonizing an outside studio. Disney draws up the designs of the characters. They do the story and then they farm it out to this other studio. And it's like, don't tell anybody And it's only years after the fact that we find out that they did that. And the company actually circles back to doing this exact same thing 45 years later in 83. Have you ever seen Winnie the Pooh and the Day for Eeyore? I don't think so. This was released 10 days after I was born, Jim. So it it should be. So you have no excuse, all right? You know, just. (laughs) All right, I know your eyes were learning to focus at this point, okay? You know, but it's not like you had a full schedule. It's like, Mom, let's go down to the theater. Let's watch this. (laughs) Stories done by by Disney. In fact, Pete Young, the late great story artist at at Disney, they they laid out this whole thing. But it was just like, eh, do we really have to make this? And they farm out the actual production of Winnie the Pooh and the Day of Eeyore to Rick Reinhardt Productions. And they get it done, and that's out in theaters by March of 83. 
But what's kind of interesting about the whole DuckTales Legend of the Lost Lamp thing is that because it came out and there wasn't really any controversy about the whole, yeah, it's made by a studio in France and one in Australia and one over there. And it's, okay, maybe we can do these things with outside studios. And this, in a way, actually plows the road for Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, where they set up the studio in San Francisco, didn't they, with, with Henry Selleck? Yes. Skel- what is Skellington Productions? Skellington Productions, yeah. yeah. And in turn, because Disney actually made this deal with Henry Selleck and Tim Burton, that was what they used as legal precedent to set up the deal with Pixar to make, what was it, a three-picture deal at that point, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, for which it got us Toy Story and got us where we are today. We have to give a shout out to to Kathleen Gavin, who is sort of the unsung hero of this period of Disney animation, because she she was instrumental in both of these projects. And she also created the secret lab out of nothing, which is one of the more fascinating chapters in Disney history. So mm-hmm. Kathleen Gavin, we should have her on the show. She is amazing. No, that's a, that's a great idea. Let's do that. She's just great. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I just, I always want to shout her out because she was so influential to the history of Disney animation specifically at this time and, and doesn't get nearly the amount of credit no. that she deserves. No. But so Anyway, that's my that's my two cents, Jim. Excellent idea. We should definitely pursue that. But the huge shadow that Roger Rabbit throws over the Disney company at this time, and, and early in the show now, we were just talking about the Mickey's birthday special, and it, it's got a crazy amount of new animation of both Roger and Mickey, right? Or Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen the making of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where they recycle a lot of the animation from the actual film, I mean, you know, and it literally when I mean recycled, that they, they sometimes will show the same piece of footage backwards and forwards a number of times, but with new dialogue recorded to sort of move the story along. But this is an entirely different situation. This is legitimately new animation. Yeah, and I think this is also where that piece of animation came from that used to to be at the very end of the, the magical world of Disney where he's stuck on the door. Oh. Do you remember that? He's like pushing a big metal door that closes. Yes, I yes. think that that animation came from this. That makes from sense. This, this special. I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we had Christopher Lloyd, who did Judge Doom in Roger Rabbit. So who ends up as the voice of the villain in The Lost Lamp? But of course, you know, Christopher Lloyd. Again, remembering that this is a film that follows Little Mermaid. And Little Mermaid is the film where they did the first test of the cap system, right? There's that scene at the very end of Mermaid where first time computer generated color and just to drop it at the end of the film to see if anybody would notice. And nobody noticed. You know why you could notice, Jim? This is the one thing that gives it away. What is that? The rainbow is actually upside down. The colors of the rainbow should be going in the opposite scale, and they are actually flipped. So I, that is the giveaway that that they were still working through some things, Jim, in that oh, sequence. Oh, now so I gotta go if watch, you watch it Little again. again. Look Dang. at the colors. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. right. Wow. <laughs> but that's the thing that the, the future started for the cap system with that scene. You know that. All right, it worked. And so the production of Lost Luck was scattered in so many different directions. This was the very last film released by Disney that was all cell animation. 
after this, the future was the cap system and uh, the future was, you know, things like Beauty and the Beast, you know, folding in CG where you could, where it made sense. But parts of this were produced in France with the the Brizzy brothers who did all of that great stuff for feature animation at Disney in the 90s. And I mean, if you think about how much of Hunchback, you know, the truly impressive stuff passed through Paul and Gatan's hands. But the fact that it was done in so many different directions did make it challenging on the, the team that was wor- working on this. In fact, Rip Taylor, who voiced the genie in the film, talked about the fact that there were so many different hands and the story kept changing. They would just call Rip in and he did like three different six-hour long sessions, you know, working on the character. And it finally get, got ready to for release. He was com- completely on a different side of the country. He was in Atlantic City doing his stand-up act. And they came at him with a list of lines that we need you to record for ADR. And he had to find a place out in Atlantic City for to record this new set of five and six pages of dialogue so that the film could finally get out the door. And I'm not going to say it's my favorite Disney film. I always love the Scrooge McDuck world, and it was always fun to hear Alan Young, uh, you know, as the voice of Scrooge. But clearly, Legend of Lost Lamp had some fans because just uh, the, the last season of the DuckTales reboot, the episode two of season three, we've got the Quack Pack episode that Bill Farmer came in and played the goofy, but the goofy from Goof Troop and the switch at the end was we were now back in the world of the genie. Yes. What is also very interesting is that, you know, there, there are all those famous stories about Disney not wanting to do Little Mermaid because it was too close to Splash. But the fact that this and Aladdin were basically in production at the same time and Aladdin uh, came out yeah. two years later is really interesting. And I think that that is, that is the one thing that really is the knock against watching this movie today is like mm. after seeing Aladdin, it is pretty, mm-hmm. it's pretty poor, um, <laughs> compared, but it's fun. There's some really good animation and Jim, you and I should do a, mm. a whole feature on the, um, the Paris studio because oh, they were doing yeah. some really amazing work, including runaway brain at the mm-hmm. time. So mm-hmm. yeah, we should, we should talk about them some more. You know who we should get. If we're going to talk about the Paris studio, we should see if we can get Glenn Keane. He decamped from Disney and went over there to do Tarzan. And largely one of the reasons he did that was he was thrilled with what Paul and Gatan had done for Hunchback. And it's like, I want to work with those guys. No, that's an excellent idea. We should definitely look at that studio. And I love that observation about Legend of the Lost Lamp versus Aladdin. But (laughs) about the time this movie is coming out is when Aladdin is crashing and burning. I mean, isn't this literally where Hax, the mom, lose, uh, who were the three friends? Mom, the brothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, all that stuff. Everything fell by the wayside. So the fact that Aladdin ended up the way it did and clearly stands heads above Legend of the Lost Lamp. I I don't know if you could have said that about the version that was in the works two years previous. That's true. That's true. But that, that's a future show, folks. And until that show shows up, what have we got go- coming up over at Light the Fuse this week? Well, we've got great, we've got great, great episodes coming up. We actually just interviewed the aerial director of photography who shot the uh, Halo jump sequence from Fallout. 
um, which is an absolutely fascinating interview, just how they pulled that off and oh Tom God. doing it for real mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. It's really amazing. So that'll be in a couple of months. We've got a, we've got a bunch of great episodes. We've got Greg Powell, who was the stunt uh, supervisor on the first movie. Um, We've got Chris Soldo, who was the the first AD on the first movie, and he, you know he, you could hear his stories from him currently on another great podcast. Uh, the plot thickens about the production of Bonfire to the Vanities. Um, oh, and uh, yeah, we've just got a yeah, we got a bunch of great episodes coming up. Over here, we got some fun shows coming up. Len and I have just done both a new Disney dishes as well as a, a new Bandcamp exclusive. As I, I, I know you'll love this one, Drew. We, we talk about, hey, have you heard about Walt's Hideaway, the private dining room, the lounge that used to be located at the Red Wagon Inn? No. It existed for the first 10 years of the park. Uh, eventually got replaced by the Plaza Inn. And they deliberately moved this lounge, which was used to to woo would-be Disney corporate sponsors, over to New Orleans and put it on the second floor because they kept having these incidents where executives were getting overserved and then wandering back into the park. <laughs> it was like, led to some, some interesting incidents. But yeah, anyway, I will be talking about that on the new Bandcamp show. Aaron and I are going to be getting a new Marvelous Disney. Aaron Adams, a gentleman who edits the podcast here at the Jim Mill Podcast Network. But yeah, between the uh, the Scarlett Johansson news, and I guess we now finally have a release date for the Hawkeye limited series for Disney Plus. And then uh, Dustin Fuse and I, we really got to get a new Universal joint out the door. I got to get working on this this week. And if you could head over to Apple Podcasts, and if you could rate and review, not only Light the Fuse, but the show you're listening to today, uh, fine-tuning, that would be very helpful. The, once again, Drew's making friends out on social media. Where can they find you, Drew? Uh, that is Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt, on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, please reach out if you have ideas about what you want me and Jim to talk about. Let us know. We always love hearing from people. Um, so yeah, please, please reach out. And speaking of which, coming up on a, a podcast fairly shortly, I think we're going to be talking with some of the folks who worked on Vivo, and Drew is also going to share uh, your experience going over to Universal Studios Hollywood to check out the new Secret Life of Pet Rides, right? Or uh, Off the Leash? Yes. And it's always, I know, Jim, I know you love looking at the uh, Disney Channel lineup for things, but they actually were showing Secret Life of Pets on Disney Channel last night which I think is so funny that they're just promoting this other company's ride. But, you know, whatever. Very funny. It's a different world, Drew. It's a different world. Okay. Well, and oh, and and Nancy, speaking of the social media, Nancy would like me to remind you that you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram as Jimmy Hill Media and on Facebook as Jimmy Hill Media News. And uh, Drew and I will be back with a brand new show uh, this time next week.